Hello guys, what is up? This is an off week for the show right now, so I wanted to share with you an episode from another show I've been binging lately. Cauldron is a military history podcast run by a guy called Cullen Burke. According to Spotify, quite a few of you guys listen to Cullen already, but for those that don't, you're in for a treat. Cullen's gravely North American accent makes for the perfect tone as he talks through some of history's most important battles. The episode which I enjoyed the most from Cauldron was his breakdown on the Battle of Stanford Bridge. You may not have heard of this battle because it's overshadowed by the much more famous Battle of Hastings. Cullen will take you through the details, but I was drawn to this episode because a few months ago I actually visited the Battle of Stanford Bridge, as in the site. And let me tell you, it was one of the most underwhelming things I had ever seen. There was nothing, no memorials, no museum. Hell, it wasn't even a bridge. If it wasn't for this tiny little plaque that was there, I would have assumed I'd just gone to the wrong place. So it's great to hear someone really bring this battle to life. I hope you enjoy it. And just a reminder, this episode isn't replacing our usual ones, it's just uh, something extra. Cullen, take us there. I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. And thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen. And today we've got an exciting tale from Northern England. But first, some quick housekeeping. Check out the Instagram for some cool images, maps, quizzes, and our weekly Wednesday live stream. In the live stream, we just kind of chat and go over movies or current events and things that are happening in the military history realm. But we also pit two historical commanders against each other with the goal of eventually getting some kind of final bracket together and from there we're going to do some actual wargaming on the live stream once we have it narrowed down to like 16. So check that out every Wednesday at 9 30. Also check out the Facebook and Twitter for all of these social accounts or social media accounts just search at Cauldron Podcast. Don't forget the Patreon if you have the ability to throw the podcast a couple of shekels for research materials or coverage for hosting fees, please do so. If you don't have that kind of uh, resource or money, go ahead and take a couple minutes and give us a rating or review and definitely subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're currently listening. So please, if you can, if you like what you hear, rate, review, subscribe, support the show, and... uh, I thank you and I appreciate you and your support. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. Let's go back to an age when the Norsemen roamed and ravaged any lands that touched the great seas and rivers of Europe. To a time when England was a fresh-faced infant of a nation. When the sword and axe were the tools of the trade, and the shield wall was the king of the battlefield. Let's go back 953 years to an unseasonably warm late September day, where next to the River Derwent, the Viking Age came to an end. Let's go back to the Battle 
of Stamford Bridge. The year 1066 is often marked for being one of those flashpoints in history where everything changed forever. And this is with good reason. It was the year of Hastings. The Battle of Hastings is in every book of the great battles or compendium of historical events that I've ever read. Hastings saw the end of the Anglo-Saxon English and the rise of Duke William of Normandy, more widely known as William the Conqueror. From that one relatively small battle, when, you know, it's small in comparison to some of the other more large tectonic plate type engagements that happen throughout history. So from, from that small battle of Hastings rose the English world as we know it. After Hastings, the world was set on a new course. And it was a course not just for Europe, but for the Americas, Africa, Asia, and Australia. Anywhere that the British Empire would eventually take hold was somehow changed by the Battle of Hastings. But before Hastings happened, before that fateful event between Harold Godwinson and the Anglo-Saxons and William the Conqueror and the, the Normans, there was a battle almost as decisive, maybe even more so. Because without the Battle of Stamford Bridge, it's possible, even likely, that there would be no Hastings. Britons in England had been slowly edged out by the Angles, Jutes, and Saxons since the Romans officially left the island. These proto-Vikings from Denmark, Norway, and Flanders established several small kingdoms in Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Kent, Essex, Sussex, and Wessex. As the centuries rolled by, these kingdoms warred and conquered and made peace with each other, but then in the 9th century, things changed. Wicked pirates from the north sacked the monastery at Lindisfarne. The Norsemen had come to England and the Viking Age had begun. Over the next 150 years, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms would be almost snuffed out, but time and again they were able to unite and survive. By the mid-11th century, there was a wealthy and growing kingdom where modern-day England exists. The king of the English was a religious man that held very little real power. Edward the Confessor is most famous now for dithering about his will, but he had a tough job. The prominent families of the day were always bickering and plotting and trying to one-up each other. It was Edward's job to contain them and, if possible, harness their energy. After putting down a rebellion of the Godwinson family and exiling them, Edward came up with a solution. He would side with the Godwinsons, elevate their promising son Harold to high counselor position, and then use marriages to appease the other families and factions. Edward was a weak king. He found it much easier to allow the more charismatic Harold Godwinson to rule the kingdom in his stead. The one thing that Edward could not delegate to Harold, though, was choosing his heir. And it seems even this, though, was too much for Edward to handle well. Duke William of Normandy, who was a cousin of his, and he had promised Duke William that he had chosen him as the heir. The other heir Edward had chosen was his right-hand man, Harold Godwinson. 
Lucky for Harold, then, when a sickly and frail Edward made his final confessions, and early in January 1066, Edward the Confessor died. In a suspiciously quick turnaround, Harold was proclaimed king the day of Edward's death, and the very next day, the dead king was buried, and the new king, Harold, was crowned. As Edward was ill for about two weeks, it's entirely possible that the plan for acclamation and the gathering of all the necessary people had been going on for days before the royal death. It's also possible that Harold orchestrated the entire thing. Whichever is true, the new English King Harold had an instant enemy across the Channel. To make matters worse, the Normans claimed that Harold, while a guest of William, had sworn a solemn oath to the Norman Duke. This is possible, and maybe it did happen. Still, William eventually would prove himself cunning enough to have made this whole thing up as a power play. Either way, Harold grabbed the crown and in the Norman eyes, he was an oathbreaker and a stealer of thrones. King Harold's first moves had played out fairly well. He had gained the old king's trust, positioned himself to take the throne, and then was able to execute the royal takeover quickly and without issue. But soon, an old festering wound in the Godwinson family ripped open. Harold's brother, Tostig, had been made Earl of Northumbria by Edward. Tostig was a rough and bitter man with none of his brother's charm, and soon the people he governed began to grumble. Tostig ruled with a, quote, heavy yoke, imposing high taxes and being generally a shit to the people of Northumbria. Between his frequent intrigues and assassinations of rivals and his habit of skipping out on the king's court, the Northumbrians had had enough. In 1065, the Thanes of Yorkshire took the city of York itself and slaughtered some 200 of Tostig's men and supporters. The rebels declared Tostig an outlaw, and they started to proclaim that they had made Morcar, the brother of Edwin, who was the Earl of Mercia and a leader of the anti-Godwinson faction, Morcar they had made as their new Earl of Northumbria. Using this momentum, the rebellious Northumbrians moved south, under arms, to press Edward into giving them their way. Edward was inclined to support Tostig and raised the feared to put down the rebellion. His read on the situation, though, is suspect, because he had no idea what Tostig was like as an earl, and in fact had paid so little attention to the northern part of his kingdom that he famously never even visited it. Like with most of his rule, Edward delegated the job of dealing with the rebellion to Harold. Tostig's brother, Harold, met with the rebels and heard them out. It's here that Harold probably realized what he had to do, but I doubt he had any inkling of the consequences. After getting the demands of the rebels, Harold met with Edward and convinced him to agree to terms. This is probably just accepting a fait accompli on Harold's part, but it could be something more, something darker. 
When Tostig heard that he was to be exiled and Morcar was to be confirmed as his replacement as Earl of Northumbria, he went scorched earth. Tostig publicly claimed that the whole rebellion was a setup job by Harold. Harold, he said, wanted his brother out of the way so he could ingratiate himself with the northern factions and the northern people. It was, Tostig swore, based on Harold's desire to unite the country for the coming invasion of the Normans. He wanted the entire country, north and south, east and west, to be fully united and on his side when he became king. Exiled and powerless, Tostig scrambled to gather whatever men and ships he could. He set sail for Flanders, where his father-in-law was the ruler, and there Tostig convinced him to loan some ships and men. With a tiny fleet but a ton of hate, Tostig crossed the channel again, this time raiding all along the English coastline. His army was no more than a pirate band, and so was unable to do more than a small-scale bit of localized damage. The coastal defenses designed to hold off the coordinated attacks of Viking fleets was more than capable to see Tostig on his way. Unable to do much with what he had, Tostig went north to the Kingdom of Scotland, looking for aid. Scotland at the time was still strong and independent, but it wasn't whole as Viking lords owned large sections and the island regions. An interesting little side bit here, or an excellent way to remember how long ago this was um, to, uh, to really get stuck in on it, the Scottish king was Malcolm II. That would be Malcolm, who would go on to be made famous by none other than William Shakespeare. Malcolm was immortalized in my favorite of the plays by Shakespeare, which is Macbeth. When Shakespeare's writing about Malcolm, it, this this whole story, all this stuff was 500 years previous. It was it, it was ancient for them, so it's even more so in, to think about for us how old this uh, this information is. Anyways, in uh, Scotland, Tostig find, uh, found moral support, but no real material gain. Because of the close ties between Scotland and the Norsemen, especially the Norwegians, this probably was when Tostig realized that he had to go for broke. He needed a real army, and the only one that might fight, if not for him, then with him, was across the frigid, misty sea. The king of Norway was born in 1015. Harold Sigurdsson, soon to be Harold Hadrada, would grow up to be a large man and a mighty warrior. Harold was eventually uh, named Hardrada, which means in Scandinavian, it means a stern counsel or hard ruler. I also saw that it could mean ruthless. Um, there's a number of different variations, but uh, Harold Hardrada lived a real, a true Viking life. At 15, he was exiled after a defeat in battle and went from Kievan Rus to Constantinople as a wandering warrior. In the Roman city of Constantinople, Hardrada joined the vaunted Varangian or Varangian guard. And what amazes me about the Vikings is in a time of such slow travel, when most people saw little of the world outside of their own town, these guys were incredibly well-traveled even by today's standards. Hardrada saw fighting in Russia, 
the Balkans, around the Mediterranean, in Sicily, Asia Minor, and maybe even went to the Holy Lands themselves. Gaining both experience and treasure, Hardrada headed home to Norway in the mid-1040s to wage war against his nephew, King Magnus. The two eventually decided to co-rule instead of fight, and after Magnus's death, only a year after their agreement, Hardrada went on as the sole king of Norway. Under him, Norway's territory was consolidated under one government. All opposition was crushed, widespread trade was returned, and a coin economy was established. As king of Norway, Harald Hardrada had a great deal of power, but he wanted more. For years, he tried and failed to conquer Denmark. So when another opportunity sprang up, Hardrada was quick to grab it. That opportunity was Tostig. We don't know whether Tostig personally went to Norway or if the negotiations were done through diplomats, but the end result was the same. Tostig offered his allegiance and asked Hardrada if he would conquer England. Hardrada had actually uh, had a, a very small or minor legal claim to the throne, and Tostig probably assured the Norwegian king of widespread unrest and an outcry across the land for a change in kings. Hardrada probably saw a chance, if not to take all of England, then at least to establish a strong Viking foothold in the northern regions of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. And it's in this part of the kingdom where there was actually a pretty large Norse population already. Um, they had intermingled since the Danegeld, or uh, Danish rule, of uh, the previous decades. Calling up his, his full army, which was much like the Anglo-Saxons in organization, uh, based, which means that they were based on farm holdings and wealth, and, and each farm holding had to, or was responsible for providing one warrior or outfitting one warrior. Um, Hardrada set out for war uh, not long after Tostig and him agreed on the invasion. So when the army was assembled, it also kind of simultaneously meant that the fleet was called out. The most common Viking ship could carry between 25 and 30 warriors. But there's actually clear evidence of vessels capable of holding up to 100 warriors. The warrior bands in each ship would fight together in battle and usually were from the same town or region. This gave them a familiarity and cohesion that was only enhanced with the long trips at sea and constant short but fast raids. The ships themselves, though, were revolutionary. The Viking ship lines are famous now for their simplistic brilliance, but at the time, all that people saw in these engineering marvels was death and sorrow. The shallow hull allowed the Viking ship to travel in rivers and into places most other war vessels could not. This gave the naval force of the Norsemen a land-based strategic ability that was rare. Time and again, the Vikings hit a coastal town, the local lord brought his defensive forces to the area, and then the Vikings showed up behind him because they had maneuvered down a river nearby, disembarked, and marched to the battlefield. The construction of overlapping boards and the dual propulsion capability of both sail and rowers gave the Viking ships speeds that would be unmatched until the age of steam. 
With his army on board these fast, crafty ships, Harold Hardrada set sail for England with between 300 and 400 ships. I've seen 700 to 800, but I have to assume that that is uh, an exaggeration. The numbers, again, could be anywhere, but I'd say that it's probably safe to bet between 300 and 400. With all of the non-combatant logistical boats in tow, though, that might be what accounts for the 700 count. If uh, if a guy on the English shoreline is counting all the ships that pass by, he's maybe not uh, differentiating differentiating between the warships and the logistical boats. But either way, I'd say between three and four hundred ships is probably what what Hardrada went to England with. With his fleet, Hardrada sailed to Scotland. He resupplied in the Orkneys and picked up Tostig and his small army. Now united, the Allied force of Norsemen and Anglo-Saxons sailed south for the city of York. Again, the Yorkshire area was densely populated with settled Norsemen, so it was believed the invasion force might gain more local support. York was also the most powerful and wealthiest city in the northern part of England, making it an obvious objective point for capture. Reaching the Humber River by September 18th, Hardrada landed his ships and disembarked his army of around 10,000 men. They immediately set out for York, and on the 20th, the First Battle of 1066 was joined. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, You're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Earls Edwin of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria had moved quickly to defend the city from the Norsemen. Scrambling to pull a scratch army together, the Earls had about four or 5,000 men that they positioned in between Hardrada and York. The battle that followed was a nasty, bloody affair in the marshes. The outmaneuvered and outnumbered Anglo-Saxon army was slaughtered by the veteran Viking attackers. The two Earls survived, but lost as much as half of their total fighting force. The casualties at Fulford, when added to the Stamford Bridge list, played a crucial role in the outcome of Hastings only a few short weeks later. York, the city itself, capitulated without a fight. The city was spared violence most likely because Tostig didn't want his shiny new toy broken. Negotiations followed the battle, and Hardrada was promised loot, supplies, and captives that would ensure the city's good behavior. Believing he had just taken the first step towards conquering all of England, Hardrada and his army withdrew from York and set up camp 11 miles east. The mood was good. The spirits were high. Victory had a sweet flavor. On the banks of the River Derwent, the Norsemen rested and recuperated near the narrow-aged wooden bridge. With the north of his kingdom fighting for its very life, Harold Goodwinson was in a tough position. He knew the Normans would cross the channel once the winds cooperated, and he also knew that he had to be there to defend his coastline. 
Harold was also aware that he had to settle his northern flank before he could take on Duke William's invasion. To fight two enemies would take a talented commander. To fight two enemies on the opposite ends of the country would take a truly gifted one. Harold was just such a commander. Harold Godwinson was born into the powerful Godwin faction sometime in 1022. He was known to have been a large, kindly man with a luxurious mustache. Gregarious and good-humored, Harold was nonetheless a fierce fighter and a shrewd politician. He recovered the Godwin family's status after they had been exiled, and Harold went on to become the right hand of the king, of Edward the Confessor. He was where the power really, truly rested for most of Edward the Confessor's reign. Harold was not just a stable ruler, he was also a very, very talented commander. Fighting in one form or another for most of his life, Harold's ability on the battlefield came through in Wales. In 1062, Gruffid ap Llewellyn of Gwynedd, the King of Wales, was ramping up his raiding into Edward's northern realm. The English king sent his top man, Harold, to deal with the troublesome little kingdom in the west. Wales is a mystical land of jagged mountains and deep, shadowy ravines, a notoriously difficult country to campaign in. Harold, though, was brilliant, using lightning surprise attacks and a two-pronged sea-land strategy, he quickly brought the Welsh to heel. By the end, Gruffid was a hunted fugitive in his own land. His head and ship prow were sent to Harold as proof that his enemy was dead and that the war was over. The well-thought-out and executed strategy to break Wales indicates that Harold had uncanny foresight and great organizational skills. He would need both to deal with the crisis of 1066. As soon as Harold heard that the Norseman and his brother Tostig had landed in the north, he moved. Harold had his household guard of somewhere around a thousand housecarls or housecarls begin the march north. These were the tanks of their day, fully protected in heavy mail and full-body kite shields. The housecarls used heavy battle axes to smash and batter the enemy shield wall. And these professional soldiers went with Harold everywhere and lived with or near him year-round to be readily at hand. As heavy infantry, the housecarls fought on foot, but being wealthy men, they rode to battle on horseback. The rest of the army was only mustered when needed and was only obligated to fight for two months. The seasons and harvest time played significant roles in making a standing army a costly impracticality for the English. So in place of a standing army, the Anglo-Saxon kings had created a complex but highly effective mustering system. Landowners were responsible for arming and producing a feardman or standard infantry warrior. The amount of land owned dictated the number of men each plot of land was responsible for. The way it worked was that if the king was in a particular earldom or part of the kingdom, he could call up that area's feared. This gave him a fighting force with its supplies ready to campaign for two months without disturbing the entire kingdom. If, as in 1066, there was a national emergency, the whole country could be mobilized for a short period. 
the Norse invasion put Harold in a bind. He had to get to York and quickly. The march to Stamford Bridge has gone down as one of the most famous forced marches in history, although there is some debate. The traditional story is that Harold mustered the army and sprinted north using good old Roman roads. Covering 175 miles in four or five days, that's 35 to 45 miles a day on foot, Harold's army is supposed to have arrived on the battlefield winded but ready. Now, this seems very unlikely to me, and a large number of military historians have begun to rethink the traditional story. I recently, uh, while preparing for this episode, I listened to an, uh, a podcast done by the BBC, um, one of their history podcasts, and they had four different authors on there, and they were discussing this, and it was very, very interesting. So, so they do a great job covering it, so I suggest you go seek that out. But uh, the consensus from the historians on this episode was that the original tale is only partially accurate. Yes, Harold's housecarls went north on foot, but since they were mounted infantry, the 35 to 45 miles a day probably is, is pretty believable. Then the speculation is that Harold, who had shown a propensity for naval command in his Welsh campaign, went north with a small fleet. When he landed ahead of the housecarls in the north, he then mustered the nearby feared. The western and northern feards finally arrived to round out the army, and the whole gang made the final leg of the trip together on foot. This would make sense given the distances, talents, and skills of Harold, and the prolonged hard fighting and pursuit at Stamford Bridge. Of course, regardless of how they did it, the English king surprised the hell out of Hardrada and Tostig when his army appeared on September 25th, 1066. Sometime before noon on the 25th, Norse scouts spotted a growing cloud of dust in the distance. At first, the thought was maybe the dust was caused by a contingent of men coming to support Tostig and to swear loyalty to him. As the cloud got closer, though, one man observed, quote, glittering weapons sparkled like a field of broken ice, end quote. Hardrada and his army were stunned to see Harold and the Anglo-Saxon army of over 10,000 men forming up right in front of them. Hardrada was caught with his pants down. The Norse king was only expecting the conquered city's tribute and hostages, so he had not taken any precautions with his army. The army was actually split with some men on the west bank of the river Derwent and the majority on the east bank. Hardrada and Tostig had some 6,000 men at hand, but a large proportion of these had left their armor at the ships. The heat of that late September day is believed to have been the reason for this lapse in prepar uh, preparation. The Norse had another 3,000 men under Einstein Ori. Hardrada's son-in-law, but these men were left with the ships at Rykals some 10 miles away. Events would move quickly, and after the English arrived, Hardrada called for the men on the west bank to cross and join him on the east. He also sent a rider to Rykal, ordering those men under Ori to join him at the, at the bridge at Stamford. The narrow bridge itself only allowed for a couple of men to cross side by side at a time. As the Norsemen crossed, English cavalry probably picked off stragglers and isolated groups. Eventually, the majority of the men on the west bank were across or had been killed, 
but Harada still needed time. He wanted to form up in a gigantic circle shield wall. This would help protect his less armored men and also meant his outnumbered army couldn't be outflanked. To buy time for his army to form up properly, Hardrada sent a mountain of a man to hold the bridge. He was armed only with a two-handed axe. The giant held the bridge for over an hour. Every man or group of men the English sent against the Norsemen was cut down. Corpses littered the bridge and surrounding area. Forty or more men were cut down by the Viking warrior, and the Anglo-Saxons were getting frustrated. Finally, some clever spearmen had an idea. He went upstream a bit, slipped into the river with a barrel and his spear, and then he floated downstream, unnoticed by the axe-wielding bridge warrior. As the spearmen floated under the bridge, he spotted a hole in the planks and thrust his spear into it. The spear found a home in the Viking's groin, mortally wounding, wounding him and opening the way for Harold's army to pass. Now, I love this story, but I doubt it actually happened, because the chroniclers only tell of it years or even decades later, and the idea that a man with no armor or shield wasn't just shot full of arrows or javelins seems very unlikely to me, but I include it because I think it's a great story. It's very cool. And go online and check out some of the artwork. Go to the Instagram. I uh, found some cool uh, paintings and whatnot of this very incident. Um, so check that out if, you, if you're interested. Anyways, whatever the case may be, the Norse army was able to form up into its defensive circle before the Anglo-Saxon army crossed the bridge. While the Anglo-Saxon army formed up into its shield wall, a lone rider came out of its ranks and sped for the Norse formation. The horsemen found where Tostig and Hardrada were and began to negotiate. He spoke directly to Tostig, and the exchange was brief. Not getting the answer he hoped for, the rider turned and rode back to his men. Hardrada asked who the rider was and what had been uh, said between the two men. Tostig told him that it was none other than his brother, King Harold himself. Hardrada was shocked, acknowledging that the king was brave, but said if he had known it was Harold, he would have had him killed on the spot. As for what the English king had said, Tostig replied that Harold had offered him his life and his former position as Earl of Northumbria. Hardrada asked Tostig what Harold had said was available for Hardrada. Tostig said that Harold replied, quote, seven feet of English ground, as he is taller than other men, end quote. Tostig had refused the offer of peace from his brother and planned to win or die with Hardrada. For both men, it would be the latter. After the failed attempt at diplomacy, there was nothing left to do but fight. The Viking position was on a slight rise, and inside of the defensive circle was Hardrada in the center, with his raven banner, the Land Waster, flying high. One of the chroniclers named Snorri has put some words in the Norwegian king's mouth, saying, before the battle, he says, he has Harald Hardrada saying, quote, we never kneel in battle before the storm of weapons and crouch behind our shields. Rather, I will carry my head high to the heart of the foe, where swords seek to shatter the skulls of doomed warriors. 
If I die, my sons will avenge me. God's will be done. End quote. And that's when the army of Harold Godwinson attacked. House Carls in the front line slowly but methodically advanced towards the Vikings. Their armor glittering, their kite shields covering their whole bodies completely, the House Carls would have looked formidable to the Norsemen. The clash that followed was maybe the last time in all of England that shield wall met shield wall in the old way on a large scale. Men wielding battle axes brought their heavy weapons crashing down on the heads of their enemy or used them to snag an enemy's shield. Then they would yank down and, and expose the enemy shield holder so that they could be stabbed or speared. Men used the short but mean-looking little sayax to slash at the thighs, calves, and groin of their opponents. As these were typically less protected areas, the blades usually caused severe damage. Neither side had much cavalry, and even though Snorri reports that the English charged with cavalry over and over, this is very unlikely. There's absolutely no evidence for that style of fighting at Stamford or really uh, uh, anywhere in England at this point in history. Snorri the Chronicler wrote his uh, tale decades after the battle, and it, it's probable that he's confused or has been given bad details, which were probably a mixture of things that happened at Stamford Bridge and Hastings. Either way, the the English attack pressed on, and Hardrada, the great warrior king, led a counterattack. This tactic actually had worked for him many times before. At Fulford Gate, he was the one who led the counterattack that would eventually lead to the battle, um, the battle-winning charge. But uh, at Stamford Bridge, it was going to be fatal. The Norse king was shot through the neck with an arrow. One of the king's bodyguards asked him if he was all right, and Hardrada supposedly responded, quote, it's, it is only a small arrow, but it's doing its job, end quote. Soon Hardrada was dead, having choked to death on his own blood. Tostig was now in charge, and the battle halted as there was a second round of negotiation. The two sides could not agree, and so hostilities continued. By now, though, the lack of armor and numbers was taking a toll on the Norsemen. Had the Anglo-Saxons not been exhausted by their long march to the battle, the fight would have probably been much quicker. As it was, the slow, grinding, pushing, shoving match of the shield wall went on for hours. If the Anglo-Saxons broke, they knew they would be annihilated as the bridge and river behind them would work to pen them in for the Vikings. Conversely, the Vikings knew that if they lost, the Anglo-Saxon army would hunt each and every one of them down, the fate of every failed invasion army. Late in the afternoon, the Norse reinforcements arrived from Rykal. Known as Ori's Storm, these reinforcements slammed into the English army with a fury. Because they had run in full mail the entire distance, though, they were exhausted, and in some cases, Ori's men even collapsed and died from that exhaustion. So the, the fury and rage with which they hit the English was short-lived but fierce. A band of housecarls cut their way into the Viking inner circle and went for Tostig and the Raven Banner. 
Tostig was killed in the ensuing fight, maybe by Harold himself, and the banner, the land waster, was ripped down. Leaderless and with nothing to fight on for, the Norse army fell apart. Many of the Norsemen fought to the death, choosing to join their king in glory rather than beg for mercy. Ori was one of the many that went to Valhalla to be with Hardrada again. Late in the day, the English pursued the broken fleeing Norse army back to their ships at Rykal. No quarter was given as these men had been offered peace twice and refused. As invaders, they could have expected nothing but death. At Rykal, that's what they received. One of the chroniclers said, quote, Some were drowned, others burnt to death, and thus perished in various ways, so that there were few survivors, and the English had possession of the place of slaughter. And when he says that the, uh, end quote there, and when he says that some were burnt, it's probable that they, that there were men who tried to either hide or get into some of the ships and uh, sneak away that way. Um, and in the process, the English burned many of the ships. By nightfall, the, the whole thing was over. The battle was done. Stamford Bridge was the most significant victory of Englishmen over Vikings in history and also marked the end of the Viking Age. The cost, though, to Harold Godwinson was dear. Almost the entire Viking army perished at Stamford Bridge, or in the ensuing pursuit. Harold met with Hardrada's son Olaf and agreed to peace terms on the promise of no further attacks. The Norsemen were sent back to Norway with only 24 ships of the three or 400 fleet that had left Norway. This means only 500 to 1,000 men survived the battle. Harold would burn all of the ships, or he maybe he even kept them and integrated them into his own fleet. We're not really sure. But um, out of all the, the, the ships that sailed from Norway, only 24 made their way back to Norway. Harold's losses, on the other hand, were, are unknown, but they must have been high. A day-long slog fight between two evenly matched, experienced armies was bound to be costly. As the Vikings fought from the high ground and on the defensive, English losses were probably more high than usual. Beyond the men killed, though, the wounded, unless very uh, superficially so, would be off the board for some time. And unfortunately for Harold, his turnaround time was going to be very quick. The bodies of Tostig and Hardrada were sent to their respective homes and respectfully treated. I think this, this really speaks well of Harold Godwinson's character. He, he seems to have wanted peace genuinely. Over and over, his offers of peace were refused during the battle and, and really forced his hand. And then instead of prolonging the fight or disgracing his enemy's bodies, which would have led to resentment and anger and, and potentially more fighting, Harold did the right thing. Of course, though, this could be less a uh, part of his character and more a keen desire to get back to the main enemy, which was William in Normandy. Less than three weeks after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, Harold Godwinson, the last Anglo-Saxon king of England, would die at the Battle of Hastings. His army defeated, 
his country conquered, and the world changed. Stamford Bridge today is little remembered, but without the losses sustained there, Hastings may have turned out very different. It's one of history's great what-if questions. What if Harold wins at Hastings? And I'm going to leave you with some more what-ifs. What if Harold died at Stamford Bridge instead of on a hill in Hastings? What if diplomacy had won out and Tostig and Hardrada made some agreement with Harold? What if the winds had been better and William had sailed first? Or what if Hardrada had stuck to his attacks in Denmark and had never sailed at all? So much of our history changes with one tiny little tweak, and I, I really find that these types of questions interesting. All right, uh, that is the Battle of Stamford Bridge. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. This week's sources are Osprey's Viking Warrior vs. Anglo-Saxon Warrior by Gareth Williams and 1066 by Peter Marin. Great books, and they were uh, really fun to read, really quick, uh, loaded with information, and pretty inexpensive. I think each one was seven or eight bucks, so check those out on Amazon. As always, a big thank you to Melhack for the episode artwork. I know that the episode artwork has a church tower or some kind of tower in the background look she's an artist not a historian um i thought it was a cool piece and i i like it so i understand it's not 100 accurate but who cares rate review subscribe and if you want to hear the tale of durful go to patreon and support the show if you have any questions comments concerns feel free to reach out on social media also if you want to put pen to paper and send me a theory like I said, go ahead and do that. All right, next up, we will have a short but spooky little Halloween episode that I'm going to put out next week that I'm pretty excited about. And then we get back to business with some cool commando raids. In, uh, in November, we've got the commando raids in the Pacific, um, which should be really cool. And will be a lot of fun to uh, dive in on that with you guys. And then we have uh, uh, the, the second one for November. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, if you have any suggestions, feel free to reach out and let me know on Instagram. All right. Thank you again for listening. Have a good one.